0: You are listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by DerryCam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the Uniformed Services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. My name is Alyssa, and I'm joined today with Jessie Tustin. To hear the first and second part of her story, go back and listen now to our previous episodes. Welcome back, Jessie. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. So we ended the last episode with you starting to talk. It was 2009 and you were getting deployed with the Kansas National Guard to Afghanistan. How was that deployment different from your deployment to Iraq?
1: It was a huge difference because when I transferred to Kansas, I ended up in a medical unit and changing my job, finally completing an M.O.M.S. for a 68 Sierra, which is preventive medicine specialist. It's basically public health. And with that, I was able to get promoted to an E6, which is a staff sergeant. And I was the only preventive medicine specialist in the Kansas National Guard. So part of my job was inspecting all of the dining facilities and all of the armories inspecting the maintenance facilities and and teaching a lot of courses about field sanitation, doing what we call medical threat briefs for units before they do training. And then I also was full-time National Guard um, running a medical clinic out of Salina, Kansas. And while I was doing that, I found out that this unit was being put together, like hand-picked by um, the state. And it was called the Agricultural Development Team. And I found out that they were looking for what they call SMEs, which is subject matter experts, to fill these positions as the lead part of the mission. So half the unit was going to be infantry, which was, there was, I think, 63 of us. So it was about 30 infantrymen. And then the other half was going to be either officers or SMEs and or senior enlisted um doing admin work and stuff like that. So I found out my MOS was the only qualifier for one of the SME positions. Everybody else, they were handpicked because of their civilian skills um, for subject matter experts. Because most people in the army full-time don't have farming backgrounds. They don't have agricultural expertise. We had an epidemiologist um, he worked full-time at Kansas State. He was he was part-time on the Guard. You know, we had an agriculturalist. We had a livestock specialist. And we had all sorts of amazing, really brilliant people. that Their primary work was from civilian, you know, their civilian experience. And we were all recruited into this amazing mission. And when we deployed to Afghanistan, you know, it was basically... We knew we were going to a really remote area up in the northeast part of the country. It was Logman province. And we were stationed at Fab Meadowlum. And our job was basically to help them rebuild their country through agriculture. A lot of people don't realize this, but before like Russia invaded Afghanistan, it had one of the most thriving economies in that part of the world. Because like 85% of it was based off of their agriculture until like russia destroyed it so we were trying to help them work with what they already had and they have a lot of opportunity over there besides poppies and we were trying to help them find livestock that or or um crops that would help them rebuild their country just as fast if not faster than selling you know heroin so My primary mission originally was to help the Department of Agriculture develop and create these programs that they can maintain, you know, whether it involved pesticides or herbicides or um, some sort of lab type of program to, like, improve the different yields. But it didn't work out because they were always just trying to get money or supplies from us. And I kept telling them, no, we're not doing that we're here to create programs we're not here to like feed your economy you need to figure out how to do that and i kept talking to my section leader who was amazing and he was like you know tustin i really i think you would be an excellent at working with afghan women i want you to see if there's a way you can find a way to work with afghan women and i was like i would love to do that i'm i'm trying to figure it out i keep talking with the department of women's affairs um, she was, like, kind of wishy-washy, just like the other government officials that we were working with. And I, I just couldn't find any stable ground with her to feel comfortable enough to fully invest in some of her program ideas. Until we had um, some village elders come up to us and tell us that they had wanted our help for the women in their village. Because a lot of them were widows or
0: mm-hmm. their
1: husbands were disabled from the war. And they had like, you know, so many kids and they couldn't feed them and the community could only do so much to help them. So we created all of these programs for females that I guess were tried in the past, but not successful, where we helped them um, develop these skills. Like, for example, we helped them learn how to process saffron, which is a very expensive crop because it's high demand no matter where you are, it's a really hard crop to process because you have to do it by hand. And you can use it not only for like seasoning or coloring of food, but you can also use it for medicinal purposes. We would do different programs like this, we're working with the local colleges like Kabul University and Jalalabad. And we had interns that were running these programs. Wow. Um, but basically it was Afghans training Afghans and we were just kind of in the background making sure that it was successful and ensuring that the money that was being exchanged was going to the appropriate people. Mm -hmm. We were paying these women to learn how to do this and we promised that they would be paid the same amount as the men. I don't know, like a lot of people don't understand this, but most women, like, 80% 80% of the women in Afghanistan don't get reimbursed for their labor at all. And the ones that do are lucky if they get half of what men get paid. That's incredible. So we were working, we started out with 50 women and we had this, what we called a, uh, it was like an example farm. There's another term we used, but my brain is not remembering. But anyways, they would, we would go and do all this training on this farm with them. And then at the end of the week, we would make sure that they got paid and they were able to walk out of there with the money in their pockets. Because at first they were very resistant. They were not hopeful. They were just like, no, we don't believe you. You're freaking Americans. You've told us this shit before. Yeah. Nobody follows through. You know, every time they tell us we're going to get paid, the money gets handed to whoever's teaching the class and then they never give the money to the, the students. Wow. So, um, I promised them that every payday I would be there and I would make sure that they would get their money. And I um, actually have pictures of the first time because it was incredible how, how much their faces lit up the first time it happened. Sure. And then, um, like, I just saw little changes. And by the end, all these women were just so grateful um that they had this opportunity like a lot of them were just like i want to make sure my daughter finishes school because most girls don't finish school over there as mm-hmm. soon as they start their period they drop out they don't have this, the kind of resources that that we do here like they don't have pads they they don't have a way to wash up at school there's no like they're embarrassed by it they're they're you know they're ridiculed for mm-hmm. being a woman basically yeah um, so these women saw opportunity they saw hope and they just, they were totally lit up by the end. And it was an extremely rewarding mission with a lot of other complicated stuff happening in the background. But that was the most important part. The part that I love to share with people is like there's more shit going on over there than just people getting blown up. There's more shit that's going on than, you know, people being raped or murdered, there's actually some good stuff happening out of this. That's
0: great to hear because that's definitely something that we don't as civilians hear a lot of, nor enough of. We only hear, and and that's what, you know, the news stations, you know, they get the ratings from the shitty stuff and we should be sharing these positive things and these things that are putting good and hope back into the world.
1: Yeah. And that's really what I was thriving off of because there was a lot of horrible things happening in the background, but there was no way I was going to let that stop me from doing something that was like probably the most rewarding mission I ever had in the service. So, and it helped me find out what kind of person I really wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. When we were over there, Like I said, some horrible shit happened. And um, I managed to piss off some people because I was doing the right thing again. And a group of guys in my unit tried to get me discharged for Don't Ask, Don't Tell again. Wow. And uh, I just remember my Sergeant Major pulling me aside. And like I already had chewed him out and told him he was a horrible leader because he was so busy worrying about making everyone happy that he wouldn't do the right thing so we we were kind of butting heads already. Um, uh, basically, he's like, do you even want to be here? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, I have these sworn statements right here. You just like totally came out to me, these guys. I'm like, they've known this whole fucking time that I'm gay. It's not like I the first time I fucking talked about it. And he's just like, well, we're trying to figure out if you're going to actually have to go through this process or if it's going to actually, you know, if we're going to actually discharge you for it. It's like, what are you fucking talking about? So you're showing me the sworn statements and all these guys, like we had gone out on this mission They had asked me what I was doing on leave. I was telling them I was going to see my girlfriend and we we're going to go do all this stuff. And I didn't think anything of it, but because I had pissed them off so much and they were just playing along. Yeah. Um, they tried to use that story to, like, get me discharged. But fortunately, I had several senior enlisted and um, officers who knew the regulation a lot better than the command sergeant major. And basically told them that it was um, illegal what they were trying to do, the way they were going about doing it. And uh, and they threw all the sworn statements out. But at, by that point, the damage was done. Right. Um, and I was like completely disgusted by everybody in my unit like except for the guys that stood up for me Mm -hmm. and there was like my best friend in afghanistan she was in a different um unit she was actually in the navy she was uh, a cv i don't know if you know what that is but no she was a contractor basically they would ship them all over the country to build um for different like fobs or different missions sometimes bridges like I don't know they would do all sorts of stuff but they were amazing okay she she was much younger than me she was like I want to say 12 years younger than me but she's the reason why I stayed sane over there because otherwise I was about ready to lose my shit on everybody because I just felt like everybody was against me and I, I was just like, can't believe this is happening again, again, you know? I even called my friend, like, she was uh, one of the officers in my unit at home. And I was just, I told her what's going on. She's like, that's horrible. I can't believe they're doing that. Like, I, why? Why would they even? And, um, and I told her, like, you know, I pissed some people off because I was doing my job. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, it's unfortunate, but... People mudsling all the time in the military. There's some sort of politics that happened there too. Um, so anyways, uh, we ended up coming back. I was there for 11 months mm-hmm. and it was a very successful mission, but because I had pissed people off, I didn't get the recognition for all the hard work that I did. Oh, wow. It was fine. I didn't really need it. I was I was satisfied with the fact that I got to do that work. Yep. But it was still like another little like uppercut, you know? Like, oh, yeah. by the way, yeah. I still, fuck you. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then uh, when we got home, I um, was, I had leave. I had like all this accrued leave, and I was so sick of people. I just didn't want to be around people at all. I think I took three or four months off before I went back to work. And I noticed like, I had developed this really bad coping skill of isolating and not taking very good care of myself. Um, I never was a huge, like, I didn't drink a lot or um, do drugs, but I just wasn't doing a good job at taking care of myself. And then probably within six months of coming home, I started getting sick, and I didn't know what was going on. Um, I just knew something was wrong because I was really, like, fatigued. And um my throat was sore and I just kind of I just felt like I was totally off and I didn't know what was going on. So I went and saw a doctor and they're like, oh maybe it's strep. And they tested me. I didn't test positive, but they tried putting me on antibiotics and it didn't really do anything. And then two weeks later, um I was carpooling with two of my friends to work and they picked me up. I couldn't even lace my boots. I woke up that morning my legs were so swollen and I had these weird red nod- nodules all over them and it oh. was painful to put my socks on like I didn't know what the hell was happening but I was going to work <laughs> <laughs> I get in the car and my friend Kim who was a medic was like what's going on why aren't your boobs laced and I told her and she's like why the fuck have you not seen the doctor oh like, you God. should you should go to the hospital that's not normal <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So, so I went through this horrible, like, six-month process of trying to figure out what the hell was happening to my body. I couldn't breathe. I felt exhausted all the time. My legs kept swelling up. Like, it was painful to pull pants over my legs. Oh! I would miss, like, weeks of work um, trying to recover. They, came, they gave me this stupid, like, medication that didn't do anything for it. I can't remember if it was like, it might've been hydroxychloroquine, but (laughs) yeah, it was like, I was on one of those for a while too, because of my arthritis, but so I finally get diagnosed because I had to see multiple specialists and keep going to the ER until they finally figured it out. But I had, they had found in an x-ray, a chest x-ray that I had these lesions on my lungs and they were like, well, you either have lymphoma or sarcoidosis. And I was like, God, which one's worse? <laughs> They're like, lymphoma, definitely, because it's cancer. But yep. sarcoid's not good either. Um, but it's treatable. So they had to do a biopsy. I had surgery where they, like, went down through my bronchial tube. They had to cut into my throat and go down and get a sample. Because the only way to tell the difference is to do a biopsy. And sure. I had sarcoidosis. Um, Basically, they usually see it in lungs, but it can manifest in any one of your organs, Mm. um, sometimes multiple. And I had it also in my legs. Wow. I had to be on 90 milligrams of prednisone for over six and a half months after that. And because I had to be on prednisone for more than six months, um, I was medically retired out, but it took them over two years to do that.
0: So now... And and I cannot pronounce that for the life of me. Um. <laughs> sarcoid, sarcoid. It's, so, what does was it? Is it something that you still still deal with today?
1: Um, it's mostly in remission, but I still have a lot of side effects from it, to include the fact that I developed type one diabetes because I was on steroids for so long. Wow. So the retirement process and everything was um, really crappy because I got so sick so fast. I made a irrational decision to move f- from New Hampshire or from Kansas back up to New Hampshire because I was completely isolated in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, I had friends and family up here and I thought it would be better for me. And it did end up being better for me, but initially it probably wasn't the best decision but I was still dealing with all this stuff that I had stuffed down. Uh, Yeah. I think, so what causes sarcoid is either environmental exposure or um, it's a genetic thing. Okay. Nobody in my family has ever been diagnosed with it. So I was able to, because it's considered a presumptive disease um, Mm -hmm. through the VA in the military. They have this CFR. I don't, I'm sorry, I'm using a lot of acronyms. (laughs) I can't remember what CFR stands for, but it's basically a regulation that will explain to you how things work, whether it be government or military.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And in the CFR, it listed as one of those presumptive diseases, kind of like um, Vietnam vets were exposed to Agent Orange and all of these presumptive diseases were attributed to it because of the nastiness that came out of it. And this is just one of those, like, if somebody deploys anywhere, um, their immune system might react completely different than than anyone else. And so basically, I was exposed to all this crap, and my body was like, enough, can't deal with it. And I had an autoimmune reaction. That's incredible. I have a coworker, not not to the
0: Jurassic um, environmentals that you were exposed to, but he moved from... New England to Arizona and her and her boyfriend were there for about a year and they had to move back because she was dealing with health issues. Like her lips were swollen, her hand, like her body just swelled up and just had like a weird reaction. So that's, it's interesting that when you expose yourself to different variables, you never really know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, I I feel like there's a a bigger message there somewhere and I'm not quite connecting it, but
1: that's wow. So what stress like um, people don't realize that you're you have increased cortisol levels in your body when you have chronic stress and over time it causes inflammation and it's eventually going to manifest in some sort of way. Right. that 's why a lot of veterans have IBS they have problems with their bowels because they haven 't dealt with their stress or worked on the emotional impacts that their you know military services had, so their body is containing all these like toxic levels of cortisol or hormones and it 's like just totally inflaming in their body, and people eventually are going to get sick if they don 't take care of themselves and that 's the thing I always try to share about my story is please don't do what I did (laughs) please get help please talk to somebody because it will make you sick eventually it will manifest in some sort of way whether it be physical whether it be behavioral whatever it is it's going to come out it's going to hurt you or the people you love and you got to deal with it whether you want to or not Mental health is
0: as important as physical health. And I think that's something that we, especially with this part of the mission of this podcast is go and look for, like, it's okay to look for that help. It's okay to heal yourself because your mental health deserves that just as much as your physical health does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they're intertwined. Like too many people separate them, but it's all intertwined i have heard of doctors saying the stomach is like another brain in the body. It makes yeah. decisions for you as well.
0: Having gone down my own um, anxiety, mental health journey, it absolutely <laughs> your stomach is definitely your second brain. It's going to yeah. tell you what's good, what's bad. And you got to trust that instinct and that gut sometimes and in and, and search for that help that when you need it, um, right.
1: absolutely no shame in that. Well, I feel like, the military is definitely not good at that, and they're trying, but they're not good at like teaching people how to develop coping skills before they even end up in traumatic situations or teaching them how to cope with traumatic situations or that it's okay to talk about it or process it. They're working at it, but they have a lot of work to do. Yes, absolutely.
0: So going back a little bit, so you... Came back from your last deployment in 2010. A year later, you're diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Yeah. So now it's 2011. You're dealing with the autoimmune disease. Um, I just looked it up. So the do not the the don't ask don't tell is repealed. I think is the correct word to use there in September of 2011. Right. When you saw that, do you remember how
1: you felt when you heard that news? There was so many things going on emotionally for me. Um, The biggest thing was, like, a big fuck you to all the assholes who tried to get me kicked out. Um, But but more so, it was about fucking time, and I knew that it was going to be a catalyst for bigger change. As soon as they did that, I knew DOMA was going to be repealed. And DOMA is the Defense of Marriage Act, which basically was a federal law that meant gay people couldn't get married. So it was bigger than me. It was, it was just, it was huge. And I was elated for a long time about it, but I was also pissed that I was getting discharged. And I was like, damn it. (laughs) Of course it happens at the end of my career. I wanted to share a story about my friend, Janelle. She was in the Kansas guard with me and um, we have, we're having a unit drill and she asked if I would have lunch with her one day. And so we went out to lunch and she brought her best friend. I can't remember her name. It's like for the life of me right now, but we're sitting there and, and Janelle just looked at me straight face. Cause I never really talked to her about like, myself that much but she looked at me and she said I'm gay and I don't know how you do it how are you doing what you do and staying in the military like how are you being gay and in the military I don't know how to do it wow and I was like well that's a good question (laughs) I said honestly I feel like if I can at least show someone if not multiple people that it doesn't matter who i love as long as i'm a good soldier they're not going to give a shit and they're going to earn my respect and i'm going to earn theirs i was like so i'm just trying to set the example because the only way change will ever happens through exposure um and she was like oh okay all right and that was like one of the not one of the first times, but one of the many times I had a soldier approach me and ask me how I was still in the service and gay. And like I was mostly out, but not completely. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Janelle committed suicide a few years later because she could not handle how her family and the military and her ex-girlfriend had all treated her. And a lot there's a very high rate of suicide among veterans but it's mm-hmm. even higher among the LGBT veterans.
0: Yeah. And hopefully with people al- being allowed to be out with no repercussions, will lower that number.
1: I know, like, rules change, but that doesn't mean the... do. Add- uh, right. It takes a while to change the atmosphere of an old culture yes. and... It will happen eventually. People are slowly like the younger generation that's coming in is slowly, um, making that happen, but it's going to, it's, it's going to take some time.
0: Yes. Change doesn't happen overnight. No. And I think we're seeing that, especially with, you know, this is June, 2020. Um, this episode will be aired in a few months. We've the last couple of months with everything that has gone on. I think, I think we've seen that, that, change does not happen overnight, but we can change our attitudes and help one another to be better human beings. And it starts with yourself. That's right. So you've lived this kind of trailblazing life of being who you are in the military. I think your whole service was bookmarked by the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which is kind of incredible. It was that was began, I think, in 1994 and ended in 2011. Um, this is nine years ago now that you've been um, retired. What are you doing in retirement? <laughs> what, what has life given you today?
1: Well, um, it was a lot of me focusing on me which was a huge change because i was always taking care of everyone else and then i was put in this corner where i was forced to have to focus on myself and take care of myself because i got so sick i I thought i was gonna die like i was so sick especially from all the side effects from the prednisone yeah um i literally had every side effect you could think of I was in a wheelchair for a while because it was so uncomfortable for me to walk um, yeah. that I would use a wheelchair, especially for like longer distances. Like I could do short, you know, get up from the couch, go to the kitchen, go back to the couch. But if it was anything longer than that, I would use a wheelchair because it would just take me too long. My gait was totally off. My legs were so weak and I was always in pain and on high levels of muscle relaxers to help with the pain. So for a solid year I didn't do anything and then I started to feel better and I told my doctors I couldn't take the prednisone anymore I thought it was going to kill me so they started weaning me off of it and then I'm like well what am I going to do like at this point I was disabled I was on social security and I didn't feel like I had any skills outside of the military that would help me get a job, like a decent job that I'd actually get paid what I was being paid while I was in the service. Yep. So someone told me they're like, well, if you're service connected for more than 10%, you can go through the Voc rehab program at the veteran bureau administration, the VBA. I was like, Oh, I think this was my friend, Julie, actually, who told me about it. Um, She was a veteran as well and went through the program. So I found out I was eligible. Um, I had my GI Bill. You have to have at least one day left on it to even be able to get into the program. And then they will help you do an assessment to determine, with your limitations, what jobs are best suited for you. And originally, I wanted to go into environmental science because I wanted to keep doing like public health kind of work. I wanted to protect people from the nasty shit that I was exposed to and trying to find ways to improve the environment. Like, I was definitely passionate about it, but I learned really quick. After taking like a lot of math classes and I w- I did really good in math and, and science, but then I had to take calculus and I learned really quick I was like, nope, I am not suited for this. <laughs> it's not going to work for me. <laughs> and I had to study like so many hours every day. I would go to see a tutor. I would go to a study group. Um, I would spend hours and hours trying to figure calculus out. And it was so, like, I can do anything. Why can't I do this? And finally, I just, like, realized, like, I got a C-plus in that class. Or a B. No, it was a B-minus, I think. And I was like, you have to have a B-plus or higher to get into the engineering program I wanted to get oh. into. And I was like, what? So while I'm trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do, um, I ran into my friend John. And John and I started hanging out again. And at this point, John had like three deployments to Iraq under his belt. And he was a a hot mess. He had deployed. And two of his deployments were like back-to-back. He never even left. So he was there for like 24 months straight at one point. And he was a raging alcoholic struggling with his PTSD. Um, And eventually he admitted to me that he was homeless or on the verge of being homeless and i looked at him and i was like you know buddy um you're not gonna go through this by yourself i'm gonna i'm gonna help you so he moved in with me and we had some rules and it was really an adjustment um even with a guy but um he um was retired he had like 34 years of service because he was in the navy before he joined the army national Guard. Um, and when they retired him out, they should have medically retired him mm-hmm. because he kept showing up to drill drunk. Oh. And nobody was like, hey, what's what's going on? Like, you need help with something? Nothing. They were just like, oh, God, he's drunk again. And so they got fed up with his shit instead of trying to figure out what's going on and just retired him. And he didn't fight it because he was so pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, I helped him get service connected and because he was homeless they rapidly processed his service connection it took five weeks for him to be 100 percent permanent and total service connected which is incredible like you don't care about that ever happening sure and then um we were able to get his social security within six months that um And through that time, he started going and seeing his providers and getting mental health and going to group, um, doing group therapy and stuff. And he was getting better, but still struggling with his alcoholism. And finally I was like, you can't drink here anymore. I just can't babysit. I'm not like, if you want to get drunk, you can go out and get drunk, but I'm not going to babysit you. Yeah. And, um, at one point, finally, I was like, I can't, like, I love you, buddy, but you got to get your own place. You, you know, we came to this agreement. Once you're financially independent, you're going to get your own place. So we found a place, which is literally a half a mile from where I live, and he has been doing really good ever since.
0: That's fantastic to hear.
1: He's kind of the reason why I ended up being social worker, because he made me realize that I am good at helping people and, mm-hmm. you know, how to work. Like, I understand the process. I'm good at coordinating and collaborating and making connections for people. Um, yeah. So I'm a social worker now, and I work with homeless vets. That's,
0: That's fantastic. Um, tell us where you are today in your personal
1: life. Um, so now I am... In a relationship with um, an amazing woman and she has a daughter who's 18 months old, actually 19 months old now. Um, We've been together for seven months now or almost seven months. So we're still really new in our relationship, Um, but it's going very well. I have worked really hard to regain my strength after years of being sick. And taking better care of myself. So I was able to actually get myself a motorcycle about six years ago. Because it was a dream of mine to always ride. And it's one of my favorite things to do. Because I can't do a lot of adrenaline rushing stuff anymore. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Yeah, so I, I love riding. And I'm, I'm in a motorcycle club. And um, we do a lot of stuff for veterans as well. That's fantastic. I love going hiking and camping and just whatever way I can um, recharge because it's a it's a lot of work to be a social worker and you have to take good care of yourself so you can be yes. present for people. And
0: you live in the right state being in New Hampshire for hiking and camping. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. It sounds like you're doing positive today and that's something that here on the podcast is an outcome that we love to hear Mm. and it's it's very important especially to show our audience and especially those listening who are veterans um struggling or going through their own journey of self-healing and in in healing in people who might be listening who are going through their own journey of mental health and healing in that way, whether they're veterans or civilians, um, everyone, no matter what your story is, no matter how you grew up, no matter what you've done, mistakes or choices you've made in your past, you have the right and you deserve to look for help and get that help and become the best version of yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think everyone's capable. It's just Sometimes it, and it, it definitely helps um, to have the right support network. And a lot of veterans are isolated. Sometimes that's to their own doing. And sometimes it's because people just don't understand how hard it is to readjust. And that's kind of why I love doing what I'm doing, because it gives me an opportunity to bridge the gap between the civilians and veterans. Um, yes. Yeah to help you better understand, like, well, it's not as simple as just, oh, get used to it. That's the way things are. Um, We have acquired all of these life saving skills that are really difficult to turn off. And honestly, I will always be a soldier, no matter what I do. That's always going to be instilled in me. So just helping people to be more empathetic towards the the Struggle a veteran has in helping a veteran understand that yeah it's okay to struggle it's okay that you're um you're going through this it's just you got to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel and there are people out there that will help you there are people that are willing um and you're not alone
0: absolutely and With the Homeland Heroes Foundation, if you are struggling, um, looking for help, please message us where you can message us on Facebook. If you're in the New England area, we can support you with the resources that you need and get you in touch with those. Our community is something that we're really proud of. And the Homeland Heroes Foundation has created a fantastic community surrounding us where we can help you with the resources that you need. Um, Reach out to a friend, reach out to a coworker, reach out to a family member. If you are struggling or if you need someone to talk to, there's absolutely no shame in that. And I I definitely want to resonate what you just said, Jesse, you don't have to be alone in your struggle. This has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I'm excited to speak with you again in a, um, a few episodes. Um, when we dive into your social work a little more, um, thank you for joining us today and sharing your story, um, with the Homeland Hero salute podcast. Um, one last question for you. Um, and then I'll let you go. I think this is one of the longer ones, um, but you've got so much, and I feel like we could probably go on for another couple of hours to hear your story. <laughs> and I'm, I, I can tell you've got more stories in you. Um. So maybe we'll have to have you back to tell some of those too. Um, So one last question that we end all the podcasts with, and I already feel like I know your answer, but if you had to do it all
1: over again, would you? No. Really? I wouldn't change anything. Okay. I wouldn't change anything. The only thing that I would change about my service is our probably would have gone active duty okay and that's about it but everything else I would not I would not change wow okay well this has
0: been a completely a definite enriching journey and I'm so glad that you joined us today Thank you to the audience for joining us for the last part of Jesse's story. To hear the full story, go back and listen to part one, two, and three of the Homeland Heroes Salute. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.